Good morning. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We'll be starting in verse 18. Uh, Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In our text this morning, we are continuing to consider the first of the Toledots of Genesis, called the generations of the heavens and the earth. We also see a continued usage of the compound divine name Yahweh Elohim, indicating the power of God acting in an intimate and relational manner toward mankind. In verses 4 to 17 of this second chapter in Genesis, we began to consider a more detailed account of what transpired on the sixth day of creation. We noted that there are certain details of creation that are being presented to us in anticipation of what will transpire in chapter 3 with the fall of mankind at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We saw that cultivating crops had not yet started to grow because this was a type of vegetation that would come as a result of the fall. We saw that man was created from the dust of the ground and that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We also were introduced to some specific trees that God created, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil both of which we will learn more about in chapter 3. As a part of all of this, we saw the Garden of Eden, in which God placed man to be fruitful and multiply, a perfect place of paradise, a place absent of corruption and sin, and a place where God blessed Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of his creation. We also saw God's instruction given to man about the garden, giving Adam permission to eat of all of the trees of the garden except one, and thus issuing also a prohibition to Adam that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So with all of this in mind, let's now consider the first point in our outline, God reveals Adam's need for Eve. In our text this morning, in verse 18 of chapter 2, we see God continue to speak when he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. 
I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so we begin to read of the account of God's creation of Eve, the woman whom God would form from the side of Adam, the present, and present to Adam to be uh, his counterpart, his helper, and his wife. In verse 18, we see that the first words spoken by God about Adam were, it is not good. And this is significant because this is the first time in creation where God says that something is not good. Everything up to this point had been declared good. But now that Adam has been, been created, there is something missing. There is something that still needs to be done. Moses very clear, clearly explains what isn't good here, namely that Adam is alone. It is not good that Adam does not have a counterpart, a helper, someone to love and cherish and spend time with, someone to fellowship together with before the Lord. This is not a good state of being for Adam. This is not a good state of being for man. One commentator said the following regarding this, man being alone was not good because he could not do all that God had planned for humankind. At this point, God had created Adam, but Adam in his, lonely, in his loneliness, in the absence of Eve, Adam in the absence of the woman given to him by God as his wife, is not yet able to accomplish the creation mandate that God will give to Adam and Eve as we previously saw in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.28 reads, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. In Genesis 1, this mandate was something that God spoke to both Adam and Eve. But in our text this morning, where we are given more specific details of what transpired on the sixth day of creation, at this point, God has not yet created Eve. The mandate God gave in Genesis 1 was a mandate for both of them, not just for Adam. It was God's plan for humankind. In this mandate, we see God's purpose in creating mankind, that they are to procreate and to rule all that God has created. Quite obviously, apart from Eve, Adam is completely incapable of accomplishing this. And so we see God say that the solution to this problem, the solution to Adam's loneliness the solution to Adam's inability to accomplish God's plan for humanity was to create Eve. Verse 18 continues, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Here we see the God-given design put in place for the man and for the woman, more specifically for the husband and for the wife. The word helper in the Hebrew is ezer. The meaning of this word is one who provides what is lacking in man. It implies that the woman is provided to enable Adam to do what he cannot do on his own. And so we see that God created man such that he needed an easer, that he needed a helper. And thus the woman, the wife, Eve, was to be Adam's helper. A helper that would make it possible for Adam to accomplish God's plan for humanity, which Adam would otherwise be incapable of doing on his own. Husbands, do you cherish your wives? Do you value what they say? 
Or do you lead your home without consideration for what your wives think? Men, we should lead our homes in such a way that our wife's input is a crucial component of the decision we make for our families. Let me say that again. We should lead our homes in such a way that our wife's input is a crucial component of the decisions for our families. And Genesis 2 tells us that to do anything otherwise is foolish, for God has given them to us as our helpers, and we are responsible before God in how we lead our families. Now, let me just qualify this. I'm not saying that you have to always do whatever your wives say. Sorry, wives. No, men, you are the one responsible for the direction of your home, not your wife. You are the one responsible for the protection of the home, not your wife. You are the one responsible for the provision of the home, not your wife. But if you ignore the very person that God has given you to help you, then you are being foolish at best in how you are handling your God-given responsibility. Men, I challenge you, examine how you lead your homes. And ask yourselves whether or not your wife's situation, your wife's desires, your wife's counsel takes a prominent enough place in your decision-making. Whether, whether it takes a prominent enough place in the way that you approach the governance of your home. And women, wives, I also encourage you to examine how well you follow the leading of your husbands. How will you submit to their God-given authority in the home? If your husband has heard your advice, if he has genuinely heard your counsel, if he has included you in his decision-making process, and then moves forward in a righteous direction that's different than what you were hoping, how do you respond? And is that response the response of a helper? For you're not just called to help in making the decision, but also in the fulfillment of that decision with one qualification. And that qualification is that the decision does not require you to sin. If your husband decides to go in a direction that is sinful, more specifically in a direction that would cause you to sin, then you must remember that you are first submitted to God. And then as a helper given by that God to your husband, you are to encourage them toward righteousness. Ephesians 5, to 24 says the following, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husband, ought to be to their husbands and everything. Now, as I'm, sure, as I'm sure that we are all aware, for some time in our society, this concept has been looked down upon. It has been despised because Genesis 2.18 represents the beginning of that dreaded, hated, and supposedly oppressive notion of the patriarchy. I'd like to read the following quote just to give us a taste of the way the world, apart from God, apart from Genesis, thinks about God's design. And inherent in this quote is revealed the complete lack of understanding in how God has designed man and woman and the way that we are to relate to one another. 
Ruth Barrett, in her book titled Female, get this title, Female Erasure, What You Need to Know About Gender Politics, War on Women, the Female Sex, and Human Rights, (laughs) says the following, patriarchy denies reality that woman is primary for she creates man. (laughs) First, let me just get this out of the way. (laughs) Woman does not create man. Um, clearly from Genesis 1 and the verses that we have already considered over these past few weeks in chapter 2, God creates man, and he also creates woman. We also see it clearly stated in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve: for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And here's the key, but all things originate from God. So it is clear God indeed creates both man and and woman. And just for clarity, how does the woman originate from the man? Well, here's a little preview of the verses that follow in our text this morning. God forms woman from the side of man. Therefore, woman definitely doesn't create man, although God, in his wisdom, designed women with the amazing gift of bearing children, something that men cannot do, a point completely lost on our society today. Now, How does this quote reveal to us the world's complete lack of understanding of God's design for man and for woman? Well, here's how. When Ruth Barrett asserts that woman is primary, she is speaking from a wrong assumption. Namely, that God's design for man and woman places woman in a secondary position. Her wrong assumption is that God's design for woman in making her a helper for man and making her a helper for her husband demeans her, that it makes her less equal that, and suggests that she is less valuable and even less capable. I'm here this morning to tell you that this could not be further from the truth. And men, if you think this way about women, if you think this way about your wives, that because they are to submit to your leadership, that this makes them lesser than you, if you think that their opinion doesn't matter, if you think that they are somehow less gifted or less able than you, then I strongly rebuke you against such a false and sinful notion. It is thoroughly unbiblical to have such an attitude towards women, towards the woman that God has given you to be your helper. And let me explain to you why, directly from our text this morning. One of the many reasons such a notion is unbiblical comes to light when you consider that Hebrew word ezer, which we mentioned earlier. Did you know that this word for helper is very often used to describe God? More specifically, it is often used to describe God as our helper. Therefore, if the word helper used by Moses to describe Eve's purpose in creation as Adam's helper... If this word suggests that she is somehow inferior or lesser, then that same thing could be applied to God, right? Making him inferior and lesser to us because the same word is used to describe him as our helper, right? That's clearly not the case. Here are just a few examples from this, of this word easer being used to describe God as our helper. 1 Samuel 7, 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, and he said, Thus far, Yahweh has helped us. 
Exodus 18.4, and the other was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 33.7, and this regarding Judah. So he said, hear, O Yahweh, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people with his hands. He contended for them and may you be a help against his adversaries. Now, I'd also like to take a moment to consider uh, this concept of biblical headship in the home, because I think it closely relates. Society, again, gets all riled up when they hear this, saying that this notion of headship is demeaning, saying that it implies that the woman is somehow lesser than the man, and again, this is further from the truth. So with this in mind, let's consider what 1 Corinthians 11.3 says about Christ's subjection to God the Father, as well as the woman's subjection to her husband. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. It is interesting, when you have a correct understanding of the Trinity, how it sheds light on God's design for the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. Theology matters, folks, and is much more practical than we often realize. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, we see Paul describe Christ's subjection to God, where God is the head of Christ. And in the same breath, we see Paul describe the woman's subjection to the man, where the man is the head of the woman. Far too often, the Trinity is explained in terms that are unbiblical, as Matt helped us better understand a few weeks ago. As a reminder, a biblical understanding of the Trinity is as follows. God is one in nature and three in persons. There is one God that consists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, how does this help us understand the relationship between man and woman? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the person of the Father is the head of the person of the Son within the Trinity. So the person of the Son is subject to the person of the Father. But we know that there is no inequality in the Godhead. We know that the Son is not less than the Father in any way, even though the Son submits to the Father. It is commonly stated in Christian theology that the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal to the Father. We even see this submission of Christ to the Father working itself out in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ is agonizing over what is to come at the cross and he prays the following, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Christ is submitting to the Father, but is not lesser than the Father, even though he is in subjection to him. Now, while there is a vast difference between the relationship of the triune Godhead and that of the husband and wife in marriage, we can conclude from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 that the woman, while designed by God to live in submission to the man, is in no way lesser than the man. Further, just as the worth of Christ is no lesser than the worth of the Father, so too the worth of the woman is no lesser than the worth of the man. And here is the key that unlocks all of this. What is one of the things that distinguishes the Father from the Son? Their roles. In the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit play different roles. For example, in salvation, the Father elects those who will be saved from eternity past. 
The Son offers Himself freely as the sacrifice for the sins of those whom the Father has elected. And the Holy Spirit convicts and draws those to Christ whom the Son has died for. So too, one thing that distinguishes the man from the woman, the husband from the wife, one thing that distinguishes Adam from Eve is their God-given roles as established by God in creating them. And in verse 18 of our text this morning, we see that the role Eve is to play is to be a helper suitable for Adam. Notice in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul also teaches us that man is in subjection to Christ, where Christ is the head of the man. Men, husbands, you must be subject to Christ, for he is your head. And in our subjection to Christ as our head, we must look to him as our example in how we are to treat and love our wives. Let me just say that this is no small calling. I want you to consider Paul's explanation of this in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 30. Starting in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, how are you doing with this? It's not enough to love your wife. You must do it as Christ has loved the church. You must give up yourself for your wife. How is your self-sacrifice going? Let's keep reading, verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Husbands, how are you doing with being the pastor in your home? Are you taking this responsibility seriously? Are you reading the word, teaching and praying with your wives so as to wash her with the water of the word? All right, husbands, let's see how Paul wraps this exhortation up for us. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Are you loving your own wife as you love yourself? What are you doing to cherish your wives? What are you doing to understand what she's going through and serve her in light of that, sometimes in such a way that your own desires, passions, and interests are put on the altar for her. And for those who are not yet married but but called to be so, it is indeed not good, men, for you to be alone. And in this I encourage all of you men and women who are not married to find a spouse, get married, and live together as husband and wife for the glory of God. But I also want to caution you Do not be so hasty that you do not consider the weightiness of what you are entering into. Do not delay, but be wise. Take every precaution to consider the one whom you would like to marry. Women, make sure that the man you are to marry is one whom you will delight in submitting to, that he is someone whom you will delight in being his helper. Men, Be sure that the woman that you marry is one whom you will delight in living sacrificially for as Christ has loved the church. 
that you will delight in pastoring her, that you will delight in loving her as you love yourself. It is no coincidence that verse 24 in our text this morning says that you will become one flesh. Be sure that the one you marry is the person that you will delight in making such an unbreakable covenant with. All right, let's turn our attention back to verse 18 where we see God say that he will create a helper that is suitable for Adam. This word suitable literally means corresponding to him or according to his opposite. When commentator says the following regarding this, it means that the woman would share the man's nature. That is, whatever the man received at creation, she too would have. In support of this view, we may recall that Genesis 1.27 makes it clear that the image of God is male and female. The man and the woman thus corresponded physically, socially, and spiritually. The woman, by relative difference but essential equality, would be man's fitting complement. And this is where we get the biblical doctrine of complementarianism, which we have essentially been describing thus far this morning in our consideration of this text. Complementarianism is often contrasted to the unbiblical view of egalitarianism, which suggests that God does not intend any distinctions between men and women, particularly in matters of spiritual leadership in the home and in the church. Egalitarianism aims to blur the roles established by God in creating man and woman, whereas complementarianism aims to uphold those biblical roles. As we are considering the meaning of the word suitable, we should turn our attention to verses 19 and 20, because it is in these verses that we learn more about what God means when he says he will create a helper suitable for Adam. Verses 19 and 20 read as follows, and out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Notice now in verses 19 and 20 that we see God bring every beast of the field and every bird of the sky before Adam in order for Adam to examine the animals, to observe their traits, and then appropriately name the animals. And then at the completion of this, we see at the end of verse 20, the following statement, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Here we see in God having Adam name the animals that God is helping Adam realize his need for a suitable helper, not just any helper would do. No, there were particular things that must be true about his helper in order for the helper to be suitable for Adam. Imagine Adam, and I don't know if he stood or sat, but as the animals passed before him, Adam must have noticed that his counterpart was missing. Because surely he would have noticed that for each of the animals, there was a male and a female. And thus Adam, the male, was missing his female counterpart. Presumably, he would have also noticed his authority and uniqueness in the fact that he was the one naming them, and not vice versa. He must have thought, why me? Why am I the one who God chose to do this task? 
The similarity that Adam had with the animals is that he was created from the ground, just like him. But the difference was that he was also created in the image of God. And therefore, his missing counterpart would also bear the image of God like him. These, among other discrepancies, would have been impressed upon Adam as he observed each of the animals as they passed before him. Now that Adam has been made aware of his need for a particular type of helper, we see in the second point of our outline that God formed Eve out of Adam. Verses 21 and to 23 read, So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. A very interesting observation is made in the commentaries about the fact that God put Adam to sleep, and yet why would God need to do this? It could not be for the sake of alleviating the effects of pain. Remember, this was before the fall. So there would not have been pain, at least in the same way that we experienced pain today after the fall. Most suggest that this is a picture of Christ's death on the cross, which resulted in the creation of Christ's bride, the church. And I think this is fascinating and an insightful observation that God putting the first Adam to sleep to form Eve, his bride, is pointing to the second Adam who would die for the sins of those who would become his bride, the church. And so even here, in Genesis chapter 2, we are already being introduced to gospel themes. We're being introduced to the notion of the death of Christ for sinners, the death of Christ for the elect who are chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be saved from their sins and to be with Christ forever as his perfect bride. Now, for those of you who are with us this morning that don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to consider Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who became a man to enter into the suffering of this world and experience the ultimate suffering of dying on a cross for our sins, of standing in our place, and of bearing the full wrath of God on our behalf. Consider the fact that he has done this out of love for his bride so that we can be with him for eternity. Do you know where you are going after you die? Do you know this Christ who is offering you salvation right now so that you can know for certain where you will go? Unbeliever, I implore you, come to Christ, not in your own efforts, not with your own attempts to meet God's perfect standard for righteousness, but by grace alone and through faith alone. And I implore you to consider and embrace Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Whether you realize it or not, it is of utmost importance, for this is what determines where you will go after you die. And we are not guaranteed tomorrow, let alone the next hour or even the next moment. And God caused Adam to fall into a deep 
sleep. And our text says that God took one of Adam's ribs, and from that rib, he fashioned it into a woman. This word for rib in the Hebrew is tzela, and is found 35 times in the Old Testament, but it is only translated as rib in our text this morning. Otherwise, it is translated as side or some variation thereof. And so the idea being conveyed here is that God took from Adam's side and fashioned Eve. Matthew Henry is famous for saying the following about this. He says, She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And at the end of verse 22, it says, He brought her to the man. And Adam, prepared by God for this moment in the naming of the animals, bursts forth in poetic praise for the woman that God had fashioned for him. Adam says, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. Put into a more modern vernacular, Adam says, wow. Adam is saying, that's the one. He's saying, there she is. None of the animals were suitable for him because none were of the same nature. None were a physical counterpart. None were created in the image of God. But now this one brought by God to him was of his nature. This one brought by God to him was his counterpart. This one brought by God to him bore the image of God. And thus he says, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then verse 23 says that Adam declares she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. One commentator says that the man's naming of his wife entails his authority in the home. In ancient times, the authority to name implied authority to govern. As we've already seen, the headship of Adam over Eve is not demeaning. It is not implying a difference in worth or value but instead signifies the importance of the different roles that God has established in creating the two genders. We are different. Men and women are different. Male and female, man and woman, husband and wife. And so as God brought the woman to the man, he was not just creating a suitable helper for the man, but he was also instituting the first the most important and most basic human institution, marriage. And this is the third point in our outline, God institutes marriage. Verse 24 reads, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is commonly understood that Adam is no longer speaking here. But instead, verses 24 and 25 are the narration of a sort of epilogue where we learn of the overarching purpose of this more specific account of the creation of the woman. And it defines very, very clearly what true marriage is. First, a man shall leave his father and mother. Second, he shall cleave to his wife. And third, in cleaving, they shall become one flesh. Oh, how this verse drives the woke progressives crazy. It's too binary, man and woman, 
What about the other infinite number of supposed genders? And then the notion that marriage consists of one man and one woman coming together? I mean, how archaic, how outdated, how irrelevant, right? (laughs) Wrong. What we have here is a very clear definition of what marriage is. In fact, roughly 4,000 years after this took place, it was still relevant enough for Jesus to quote when he needed a definition for marriage. Jesus, in refuting the notion of divorce, refers back to this text for his definition of marriage. Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, reads as follows. And this is Jesus speaking. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And you know what? It is just as relevant today as it was for Jesus over 2,000 years ago. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Our text this morning, verse 24 specifically, leaves no doubt that true marriage is between one man and one woman. Anything else is a counterfeit and thus an abomination to Yahweh. And this is further demonstrated by the way verse 24 finishes when it says, They shall become one flesh. If the so-called man and the so-called woman in a so-called marriage can't have sex in such a way that offspring might actually result because they don't have complementing body parts, then they can't become one flesh in the biblical sense. Because this notion of one flesh is born out of the possibility of procreation. It is born out in offspring. Children represent a unique combination of the bringing together of the flesh of a man and the flesh of a woman that is an actual physical representation of them becoming one flesh. I don't know how more clearly this can be said. And just for clarification, I'm not saying that those who can't have children have illegitimate marriages. I'm just pointing out that if a marriage is blessed with children, that those children are the actual fruit of a man and a woman coming together as one flesh. And so the notion that homosexuality, that transgenderism, which is the fruit of homosexuality realized, the notion that these are in any way acceptable according to a biblical standard and according to God is utter nonsense. And I will not apologize for this, nor will I qualify this homosexuality and transgenderism, as well as any kind of sex that takes place outside of marriage, is a sin. And if I was to affirm any of these sins in the lives of anyone here, or in the lives of anyone that are in the sound of my voice, then I would not be showing love to you but I would be acting in hatred toward you. On the contrary, it is in love that I say, if you are living in any of these sins, if you are living a homosexual lifestyle, if you are living a transgender lifestyle, if you are living in fornication and having sex outside of marriage, I implore you to stop. 
Turn from your sin in repentance. Don't be conformed to this world any longer, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Bring these things to the foot of the cross and leave them there. Embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior and live for Him instead of yourself. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And in Him, I promise you, you will find rest for your soul. Come to Him now, this moment, and be released from the chains of your sin and live in the newness of life offered by Christ to you right now this morning. And so, with this very clear definition of marriage, the first and most basic of human institutions, we come to the last point in our outline this morning, untainted by sin. Verse 25 reads, And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It is very significant that this is the last verse before we come to chapter 3. The chapter that changes everything for humanity. The chapter in which Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobey God. For God had said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. But they did not obey God's prohibition. Genesis 3, 6 says, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The chapter, chapter 3, in which Adam and Eve covered themselves because of the shame that they felt in their sin. Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. In Genesis 3, 7, they knew they were naked, but here in verse 25, they do not know that they are naked. They, here, they are not ashamed of their nakedness. They are not ashamed of their nakedness because the shame only came when the eyes of both of them were opened, that shame came when they sinned against God and said, not your will, God, but mine. That shame came when they listened to the lie of the serpent instead of keeping and treasuring the word, the command of God in their hearts. None of those things had yet taken place. So in this verse this morning, we see man and woman, we see Adam and Eve, we see husband and wife in their ideal state. We see them in their innocence, just as God had created them, and just as God declared that all that He created was good. This is what God intended for marriage at the completion of creation. And it doesn't matter that Adam and Eve sinned in this sense, that this is still what God intends for marriage today. Marriage in its ideal form should be such a relationship, such a union, such a becoming of one flesh that emotionally, intellectually, financially, sexually, spiritually, the husband and wife are not ashamed. Oh, the destruction of sin. 
Brothers and sisters, may we strive in our own lives to model our marriages after the design which God has ordained. After all, he being the creator of marriage gets to tell us what marriage should look like. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord, your word and the very clear instruction, Father. I pray that you would help us to live our lives in purity and to live in our marriages in a way that brings honor and glory to your name, for that is the purpose of marriage, Lord. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.